last year, several of your favorite podcasts and blogs got together to cover one of the greatest comic events ever, DC's 1993 annual crossover, Bloodlines. But it wasn't enough for them to just cover your newest favorites, like Nightblade, Jam, and Shadowstrike. They wanted to do more. This year, they are. In celebration of its 25th anniversary, they will be covering DC's 1992 annual event, Eclipso, The Darkness Within. Join Coffee and Comics, DC Bloodlines, Between the Pages, Pop Culture Palace, Relatively Geeky, Cosmic Treadmill, For the Non-Discerning Reader, Resurrections, and Adam Warlock and Thanos Podcast, Chris on Infinite Earths, The Retroist, Diana Prince Wonder Woman, and On the Gun, and learn who gets possessed, who fights back, who will be canceled, who will die, and who will get their own spinoff. Keep up with the crossover using hashtag best event ever and hashtag Eclipso TDW25 all throughout June 2017. Beware the power of the Black Diamond. Here's a quick lesson in comic book semantics. For years, the big publishers have had major crossover events affecting a slew of their books and benefiting from a major marketing push. There are often a great many of these affecting subdivisions of their line, but there's also usually an annual event that gets the most attention and involves the most staff. However, back when publishers routinely put out extra-length once-per-year comics called annuals to supplement their most popular ongoing series, these would sometimes involve an annuals event that only crossed over between these annuals. Books. They were also sometimes called event annuals, but they weren't technically part of the annual event. Confused yet? Bear with me. DC Comics were initially at the forefront of releasing these one-off annual volumes for their bestsellers, but a bit slow to take on event annuals, preferring to let each of their individual annuals stand on their own. That changed in 1991 with the story arc Armageddon 2001, which is still one of the best examples of comics having their cake and eating it too. There was an overarching story where 10 years into the future, a major hero would turn evil, massacre their compatriots, and establish a totalitarian regime. This premise was put forth in a single special, which also established that one new hero from the future had traveled back in time to uncover the identity of the traitor by investigating the various potential futures of the then-current heroes. Each of the 1991 annuals was a self-contained imaginary story with no real bearing on continuity, but each played into the mega-story resolved in a second Armageddon 2001 special that revealed which hero turned evil. The event annuals were a hit, so for the next two years following, DC tried them again. For 1992, the premise was that a hoary Silver Age villain called Eclipso was far more powerful and devious than once believed, and was hatching a plot that would envelop the entire mainstream DC universe for one summer. But before we get into that, here's some background on Eclipso, written for the Who's Who loose-leaf editions by Mark Wade and Robert Lauren Fleming. Physicist Bruce Gordon had traveled halfway around the world to the South Pacific island of Diablo in order to take a photograph of a rare solar eclipse from a mountaintop. Once there, however, he found that no matter how much money he offered to the natives to guide him, they refused. Their seer, a costume shaman named Mofir, had warned them against helping Gordon capture the sun god's image. Gordon, a man of science, was not amused by their superstitions. Allaying their fears, he got their help and prepared to take his photos, only to be confronted by Mofir himself. Mofir... 
furious that his own people had disobeyed his orders, attacked Gordon during the eclipse while brandishing a mysterious black diamond that he claimed had fallen from the heavens and would protect him. He was wrong. When Mofir charged Gordon, he managed to only cut Gordon slightly with the diamond before the darkness of the eclipse clouded Mofir's sight and sent him plummeting to his doom. The natives of Diablo, grateful that Gordon had inadvertently rid them of the shaman's tyrannical ways, rewarded him with Mofir's native costume and the black diamond. Returning to America, Gordon promptly forgot about the odd souvenirs for several months, until the next time an eclipse bathed the moon in darkness. Simultaneously, Gordon was transformed, Jekyll Hyde-like, into another being, an evil creature of tremendous power and evil who called himself Eclipso. Donning Mofir's costume and using the Black Diamond as a weapon, Eclipso went on a rampage, destroying an entire experimental city before a sudden burst of light transformed him into Bruce Gordon once more. With the help of his friend and mentor, Professor Simon Bennett, Gordon deduced the nature of the horrible curse that now afflicted him. Somehow, he reasoned, when the mysterious Black Diamond pierced his skin during the solar eclipse, it had turned him into a divided man. Any eclipse, real or artificial, would from then on temporarily change him into Eclipso. For years, Gordon labored to free himself from Eclipso's shadow so he could at last marry his fiancée, Professor Bennett's daughter, Mona, and live his life in peace. Though he has not yet been successful, he has at least managed to change the nature of Eclipso's transformations. Now, whenever Gordon is confronted by an eclipse, Eclipso actually manifests himself as a separate being, one that only can be returned to Gordon's body by a flash of blinding light. Over the years, Eclipso has warred against many of Earth's mightiest defenders, including the Justice League of America, the Green Lantern known as Hal Jordan, and the Metal Men. During the Crisis on Infinite Earths, Eclipso was seen blasting Wonder Woman with a beam from his Black Diamond. More recently, Eclipso was recruited by the Lords of Chaos to trigger a third and final world war, but was defeated by the Phantom Stranger. Over the course of the Darkness Within event miniseries, it was revealed that Eclipso is not the dark side of Bruce Gordon's personality, but a separate entity unto himself, one tied to a giant jewel called the Heart of Darkness, which had been broken down by a jeweler in the 19th century to become a multitude of black diamonds. The fractioning of the Heart of Darkness enabled Eclipso to manifest himself once more on the planet Earth, but only at night and only when called by the possessor of a black diamond. Eclipso's consciousness, or soul, had been residing on the dark side of the moon, in a palace he built for himself at the bottom of a deep crater. This sanctum seemed to be constructed of a black onyx-type substance, but is actually an outward manifestation of Eclipso's twisted personality. Stepping into this palace is therefore equivalent to entering Eclipso's mind. Eclipso is summoned by feelings of rage and revenge. Once manifested, Eclipso acts out the host's body's revenge fantasy in extremis, maiming bullies over stolen lunch money, murdering bosses for handing out pink slips, etc. If the host's body is an aggressive personality type, he she is instantaneously transformed into an Eclipso version of him or herself, i.e. with pointed ears, glowing red eyes, and an eclipsed blemish covering the face. This entity retains all of the powers and attributes of the host body, while also gaining those of Eclipso. A host body with a passive personality instead evokes a separate Eclipso, which takes on the characteristics of the individual's power fantasy. Seeping like black vapor into the person's ears, nose, and mouth, Eclipso might form into a stalking panther, a shambling monster, or a swirling tornado. Like the aggressive Eclipso types, these manifestations can be identified by their Eclipso-like ears, eyes, and blemish. Unlike the aggressives, these creatures do not retain the powers of the host body, only those of Eclipso. In order to evoke or become an Eclipso, it is necessary to have touched a black diamond and to retain it on your person during the transformation. Afterwards, no further contact is necessary. The same diamond can then pass on to another person, creating a new Eclipso. Each Eclipso is compelled to satisfy the revenge fantasy of its host body before it is free to pursue its own agenda. This compulsion is superseded, however, by the instinct to survive. Eclipso is tremendously strong and practically invulnerable. 
He can fly by levitation. When he holds one of the black diamonds to his eclipsed eye, it projects a chilling beam of black light that forms an impenetrable field. When held to his normal eye, it fires powerful laser beams. In passive, evoked form, he can pass through solid objects. His consciousness resides simultaneously in all the eclipses on the moon and earth. Once he takes a person and evokes an eclipso through them, that eclipso remains a part of him until he chooses to release it or until the creature comes into contact with sunlight. Eclipso's ability to possess an individual is greatly enhanced in his palace on the moon. There, the presence of a black diamond is unnecessary, and Eclipso is able to amplify the slightest hint of anger the person is feeling into the kind of blind rage which is his invitation to enter them. Anyone inside the palace is bound to turn into an Eclipso, even a passive individual. Eclipso's only weakness is sunlight, which disintegrates him instantly upon contact. You can't escape. Give yourself up. Never. I know what you want, but you can't have it. Have what? My precious diamond. Eclipso The Darkness Within Number 1 was released on May 19, 1992, but Wonder Woman wasn't much of a joiner back then, as evidenced by her late entry into the event from the June 23rd release of Justice League America Annual Number 6. Diana had been approached to join the JLI several years earlier, but quit the European branch without notice after just one issue of that title. A lot of creators were averse to lending their heroes out to a serial comedic book that some perceived as ridiculing its subjects. And George Perez used his then-current quest storyline as a way to quietly back Wonder Woman away from that possibility. A couple of years later, the Justice League returned to more traditional and frankly less engaging straightforward hero stories, with Superman rather poorly leading the American team. The Man of Steel had already tangled with Eclipso in the first Darkness Within special and in two of his own annuals, and felt the need to approach Wonder Woman to help bolster his team against the coming crisis. Dan Jorgens was credited for dark design on the issue, and I suspect the inclusion of Wonder Woman was part of that. The annual was just five months out from the much-hyped supposed Death of Superman comic, so perhaps Jorgens was laying the groundwork for the amazing Amazon to to see the Man of Steel as Justice League team leader in the coming months. Superman and Wonder Woman had a nighttime meeting on a rooftop. There's trouble brewing. Serious trouble, Diana. If I've learned anything about man's world, Superman, is that there's always trouble somewhere. This isn't just your run of the mill. Maybe you've heard about Eclipso. The supervillain, yes? More than that. Eclipso is some sort of god of vengeance. He's able to twist the anger of humans into horrible proportions and then use it to his own evil ends. The extent of his power may be far greater than any of us ever knew. But why come to me? Surely the power of the Justice League. Let's just say I'm not completely comfortable with the League yet. Guy Gardner's unstable. Gold and Beale are a couple of comedians. And Max was not right for any group. I... No, Superman, I'm sorry. I think perhaps that I'm not ready for groups either. I understand. It wasn't that long ago I would have shared your reluctance. But you know, if you give them a chance, your friends just may surprise you. We'll see. Thanks for listening, anyway. Wish me luck. Superman flew away. In a cop car on the streets below, two officers wondered what the Man of Steel was doing in Boston. They very soon had more important things on their mind. When one of the officers was killed by a jewel thief, as it happened, one of the jewels was a black diamond, which soon fell into the hands of the surviving officer, who then went on a rampage, killing the thieves and then innocent bystanders who looked upon him disapprovingly. Stop! The shooting stops now! The Eclipse police officer begins shooting at Wonder Woman, who deflects the bullets with her bracelets. You don't know whom you're ordering about, woman! I know that the killing has got to end. That's all I need to know. Your lasso! It will make a valuable weapon once I take possession of your body. No, never. That angers you, doesn't it? The thought that I will have you. You won't. 
In fact, it looks very much to me like I have you. Wonder Woman pinned the Eclipse officer with a wrestling move. Eclipso released the officer, who was horrified by what he had done. What happened? Evil happened. An evil that must be ended. Wonder Woman made her way to the Justice League America's headquarters, having seen all too clearly that Eclipso's evil needed to be stopped by any means necessary. I'm glad you changed your mind. Thank you. I'm sorry about before. I treated your request too lightly. No need to apologize, Diana. The arrival of the amazing Amazon triggers insecurities in the female members of the team. Ice thought, she's so magnificent, so confident. How can I ever measure up? Maxima had a more aggressive response. What is the meaning of this? Move aside, Earth Woman. What? Such provocative displays of familiarity will not be tolerated. Indeed, your presence here will not be required at all. Not while Maxima is on hand. I've heard them say you are a princess, but I was born to rule galactic empires. I see. And you must be Dr. Bruce Gordon. Superman's explained your mission to me. Who do you think you are, woman? That you dare to ignore me? Guy Gardner is quick to note that he's perfectly happy to give her attention. But Maxima casts him aside. This is what I was talking about, Diana. They are a bit undisciplined. In fact, mass infighting begins to break out until Superman shouts them down with a super breath enough while you're all bickering. Eclipso's scheme is rushing forward. It's time you people learn to straighten up and take orders. These are not the words that Maxima wants to hear and she soon bids a farewell in an angry huff. I've had all that I can stand of those earthling idiots. It's only on Superman's account that I bear them at all. Why can't those frail females understand that he should be mine? The young hero Starman, a.k.a. Will Payton meets Maxima in midair. You're right, Maxima. Who? Superman should be yours now, but the Earthlings stand in your way. They're jealous of your power, your unquestionable superiority. They are. And if they refuse to yield, they must be swept away. Don't you want to get rid of that silly little ice and that sanctimonious Wonder Woman? Yes. Starman hands Maxima a black diamond. Yes. 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 I fear the Martians' absence would stall my plan. But the powers of this party are incredible. The powers of the mind, intoxicating with such stupendous might at my command. Surely nothing will stop me now. Back at Justice League America headquarters, Blue Beetle showed Dr. Bruce Gordon his solar-powered blaster gun. Meanwhile, Booster Gold talked with Wonder Woman. Beetle and his gimmicks. He tried to market a solar-powered hairdryer once. Your hair is really gorgeous, by the way. Really? Many Amazons, you know, weave barbed steel into their tresses to rend the flesh of any man who would dare to harass them. Yipes! Well, uh, say, uh, nice talking to you. And I mean that. I appreciated the one when got rid of him in a hurry and asked if what she said was true. Princess Diana only offered a sly smile. Superman whisked one more way to talk and ask her opinion of the new Justice League. They are rather high-strung, and you've got a couple of serious cases of overactive hormones. It's hard to believe they can operate effectively as a team. All in all, they do surprisingly well, but I'll admit the responsibility is sometimes an alarm blares, and the Justice League are soon dealing with an inferno at a rail yard caused by Maxima. Worse, their Eclipse teammate uses her telepathic powers to take control of Wonder Woman's mind. The Justice League struggles to rein in these two extraordinarily powerful women. Eventually, Superman is forced to grab Wonder Woman and fly as far away as he can. Far enough to outstrip Maxima's influence, the rest of the League manage to briefly subdue Maxima, but are ineffective at keeping her in their custody. Ultimately, Maxima joins the Eclipse Starman in further service to Eclipso. During the distraction, the Justice League America base was wrecked and Blue Beetle went missing. Maximum Eclipse from Justice League America Annual Number 6 was by Dan Mishkin and Dave Cockrum. I didn't read this annual until I needed to investigate Bloodwind as part of my burgeoning Martian Manhunter fandom in the late 90s, and I confessed I wasn't too impressed with it. Maxima gets eclipsed in the early pages, so nothing changes substantially from that point through the end of the issue. Blue Beetle disappears under mysterious circumstances, but his battle with Eclipso prior to that point wasn't particularly relevant. 
Dave Cockerman's work in this period lacked the flash that I was looking for. But in the years since, and with the keen awareness of his early passing, I enjoy it a lot more now. But one of the most interesting things about the annual is its odd tendency to miscolor Ornoman's costume. Something you think would be very difficult for a character so iconic. But often, silver becomes gold, gold becomes silver. At one point, our trunks become red, which you wouldn't think would matter that much, given how small those bikini bottoms often would get. But it's very striking. A little bland, but striking. The other thing that gets me is that Dan Mishkin clearly was taking his cues in writing the group from Dan Jurgens, So they weren't funny. And there's an obvious contempt, especially from Superman, but really in general, toward the characters that made up this team. And as I've gotten older, I've become a firm believer that if you can't find a way into the characters you're writing, you probably shouldn't write them because there are people buying that book that do care about those characters that will feel that contempt and will express contempt towards you as a result of your handling of characters that they have affection for. No, stay back. It's dark power can destroy the world. Not anymore. As I've stated many times on various podcasts, two major events made DC Comics my primary home as a collector for the better part of 20 years, the Bloodlines Annuals and Zero Month. However, I waded into DC slowly on my way out of Marvel fandom, and that began with a Titans hunt and breakdown story arcs. I'd collected both the new Teen Titans and Justice League International off and on for years, but mostly off, in part due to spotty newsstand distribution. By 1992, I was starting to have a little money in my pocket, and the speculator boom helped increase accessibility to a more varied selection of reading options than whatever local convenience and mall bookstores carried. JLI shook me off right after Giffen and Demetrius left the line by trying to tell straight-laced Bronze Age superhero stories with D-list characters and disinterested creators phoning in disinteresting stories. Meanwhile, Wolfman and Grumman had already peaked, but at least their talent talent and enthusiasm sustained the momentum that had drawn me to New Titans on through the next crossover, Total Chaos. That event in turn committed me to collecting the new Team Titans series, and a weak sister title I'd previously only flirted with, Deathstroke the Terminator. Besides the Eclipso bookend specials, the only Titan annuals I bought new off the stands were the Titans-related ones. And those were the only two annuals no one involved with Best Event Ever 2017 wanted to touch. So please forgive me as I allow this podcast to briefly succumb to the dark influence of Eclipso to complete our group's coverage of the spectacle as it and my hardcore DC fandom hit the quarter century mark. Deathstroke the Terminator Annual Number 1 was co-plotted by David Cody Weiss, written by Marv Wolfman, with pencils on Part 1 by Gabriel Morissette and inks by Ian Aiken, Joe Statima, and Charles Barnett III throughout the book. Morissette is Canadian and co-created one of his country's more iconic superheroes, Northgard. His only other notable comics project was a Ragman miniseries before moving into storyboarding for animation. The story, A Thousand Points of Night, opens with Deathstroke joined on a mercenary job by the 1992 model of the Vigilante trademark. To the best of my recollection, ex-cop Pat Trey is the only woman to use that moniker at DC. Taken on after she was trained by Slade Wilson so she could take revenge on a gang of drug dealers for her husband's death. And of course, Wilson was also sleeping with her because why else would you have made the vigilante female? Plus, Wilson always sleeps with his female sidekicks regardless of age and probably their being blood relatives. Don't get me started on my deep regret over ever having supported the title of an file serial rapist. I was young and unwoke. I have that excuse. DC still publishes his series and sells him as an anti-hero across multiple media. And people wonder why this is a company that can't get Wonder Woman right. Anyway, Deathstroke and Vigilante were hired to rescue 
rescue a Japanese businessman named Kuragawa from kidnappers. Meanwhile, police captain Arthur Hall, who was the Commissioner Gordon of the Titans books, was negotiating a hostage situation in New York City's Lower West Side. However, the gunman was controlled by Eclipso and murdered his hostages, including a grade school-aged girl who had been visibly beaten beforehand. Eclipso initiated this massacre specifically so that his host could be killed by the SWAT team and his Black Diamond could pass from Captain Hall to the New Titans by only the most contrived path possible. Seriously, this book is 56 pages long and I've already told you the entire relevant plot of not only this annual, but also the next 56 page long book. But in between these points, Captain Hall goes on an eclipsed rampage before passing his Black Diamond to Vigilante. Slade made very sexist observations about the value and rarity of women who could fight exactly like a man and not be sissies you puked when confronted by close combat or psychos you couldn't trust. Let me publicly take back every instance of my disparaging Deadpool as a Deathstroke ripoff. Wade Wilson is an open-minded, if insane, bisexual cancer survivor with a sense of humor. Slade Wilson is the self-image of Bill O'Reilly writ for color. The dick deserves to be strip-mined and discarded in favor of his more popular and less disgusting mashup with the tick. But speaking of dicks, the former boy wonder named Grayson also turns up in a frustratingly extraneous B story. C story? D? There are a lot of lackluster threads running through this thing. There's this whole bit with Slade having his own wannabe microchip tech support guy named Squirrel to go with all those Punisher pastiche covers by Mike Zack. Then there's a group called, I kid you not, the Salvagian Army, who collect any tech that isn't nailed down for junkyard genius called the Quartermaster. He gets a whole origin sequence and ties to the destruction of Titan's Tower that makes Nightwing cry, but I don't remember this dude ever showing up again after these annuals. The main thing with this book is that it features the first full pencil art by Phil Jimenez in the second half. I was a big fan of his for a number of years, and while he's still finding his way on these annuals, he was already making huge progress just a few months later during a guest stint on the main New Titans title. He wasted an enormous amount of effort drawing every nook and cranny of that stupid Salvagian base, but it did make an impression. New Titans Annual Number 8 was much more schizophrenic, as everyone from the Deathstroke Annual was back, but joined by Kurt Swan and Iota Subotichi on pencils, Plus, they swapped out only one inker, but added Ray McCarthy, Ken Branch, Andrew Pepoy, and Mike DiCarlo. Never mind the three colorists and letterers between the two books. It's also 13 pages of melodrama dealing with the post-Titans hunt status quo of the team that's too complicated to explain and would be mostly undone within the following few years anyway. You also get to see Kurt Swan drawing Eclipso at age 72, which will make you appreciate that much more how good Jack Sparley looked when he was doing it at 50. The Eclipse Captain Hall manages to eclipse the former Soviet hero Red Star by dragging him into an alley, which begs the question of why Hall specifically needed to be eclipsed to go after the Titans. Couldn't anybody have done that? Eclipsed Red Star breaks into Star Lab to take radio control over brain-damaged cyborg. I'll give you a few seconds to work out what I was saying in that last sentence. There are a lot of similar words and concepts that might melt together if you only have an associate's degree in DC continuity. The already slow-paced story then spins its wheels for six pages before Beast Boy gets eclipsed so that there are enough de facto adversaries to make a credible threat against the other Titans. At some point, Captain Hall gets de-eclipsed and does his best Captain Stacy impression, saving some kids from falling debris that hits him. Did I mention there's the subplot where an anti-superhero politician named Councilwoman Alderman pays for a horde of spontaneously combusting Yakuza assassins and a life-eldingly obvious swipe of an Ed 209 to kill the Titans to help her get elected mayor? Okay, I think I need to give folks another minute to chew on that last sentence. Even the deep dive nerds should be like, wait, 
what on that one? Even if you're just a poli-sci major, it's a councilwoman named Alderman who can afford her own killer robot. And somehow, on page 48, they all converge on the Brooklyn Museum's Egyptian exhibit. The big battle accomplishes nothing besides the destruction of priceless artifacts, the confirmation that Starfire and Panther have already been eclipsed, and that they further eclipsed Deathstroke before they all decided to jump off for the moon. I forgot how often we use the word eclipsed as a verb in 1992. Hey, princess, fire's out. Need a hand in here? No, he's finished. was a little harsh are you feeling all right i'm fine but there's still so much to do all right one more tangents we're going in chronological order by release date august 4th 1992's ambush bug nothing special number one by keith giffen and robert lauren fleming when erwin schwab can't get a job anywhere in the dc universe his frenemy ex-continuity cop johnny dc sells erwin a black diamond for the unbelievably low price of four dollars and 97 cents ambush bug figures dc annual crossover here i come in order to get good and torqued off enough to become eclipsed erwin takes a job as a new york city cab driver his misfortune is good vibrations as Erwin is constantly running across pleasant people who offer nothing but goodwill. In another bid, Erwin takes a job at Camp Crystal Lake, but nearly getting murdered by Jason Voorhees still doesn't bug ambush enough to be turned. The decapitated head of revered editor Julius Schwartz gets eclipsed, and Erwin becomes so frustrated with his black diamond that he stomps on it. This causes an eclipso to manifest, but unfortunately it turns out Johnny DC had sold Erwin the black cubic zirconium of Eclipso's third cousin twice removed, Brown Otto. Ambush Bug gets invited to a family wing ding in Canarsie, where he meets the likes of Bad Bretho and Incontinento, before being committed with a temporary variation on Ambush Bug's usual insanity. Hey, you sure you're okay? Don't you ever shut up. Ah! Sorry I asked, princess. 1992's Wonder Woman Annual Number 3 opens on the night sky in Boston. Wonder Woman clinging to the ledge of a tall building, pounded by hurricane-force winds and heavy rain. At the top is a gunman with advanced technology that's creating this maelstrom, and hostages' lives are on the line. Regarding Wonder Woman's efforts, reporter Cassie Arnold of WTBN Eyewitness News assumes that she's dead at this point, or at least that's the hyperbole she's using to sell the late-night report. Just as Cassie Arnold and her camerawoman are wrapping up, flaming emerald energy erupts from nowhere. A well-dressed male figure erupts from the ether. He's an older gentleman. His hair parted down the middle and points to either side of his head, recalling the Marvel supervillain The Owl. He wears mostly a white suit, aside from a gray vest, and a high-colored white cape with a fuchsia interior lining. Excuse me, ladies. I meant no offense. My name is Asquith Randolph. Men call me the White Magician. The reporter asked if he was known by another name back in the 1940s. Mr. Magic, yes. I retired here to Boston, but in times of emergency, every citizen must do his part. The hostage taker was part of a group called Altered Strain. Cassie Arnold asked if the white magician had fought this group before. No, they were formed after the invasion. Carriers of the metagene who manifest no powers. They see themselves as natural leaders and want the government to find a way to turn on all metagenes. Like all terrorists... He uses fear to express his parasitic desires. It's time he tasted fear himself. Through my arts, I can tap into the mystic energies that flow through all things. I will reach into his soul, rip what he fears most from the depths of his bowels, and choke him on it. After all, there are innocent lives at stake. When this terrorist lost his job, he took at least two hostages, maybe more. After blowing the personnel director to shreds, of course, 
we think he has the assistant marketing director and her little girl up there, along with several hundred pounds of high-tech weaponry. He's mined the interior of the building, and with his anti-friction generator set up, he can't be surprised from above. He's thought of everything. I'm sure he thinks he's unreachable. But he hasn't counted on me. From within a pale green sphere of protection cast by the white magician, fuchsia energy erupts from his hands, and begins to manifest upon the rooftop as well. Spirits of fire, hear me. Spirits of earth, hear me. Black spirits, white spirits. Water and air spirits, gather about me. By the Silum's moon, I evoke the seventh ring of protection, the seventh sphere of power. I call out all the forces of fear and loathing. Come to me, give me strength, destroy my enemy. While all this has been going on, Wonder Woman has scaled the entire building, managed to confront the gunman, and has begun to talk him out of his dangerous pursuit. I am Diana of Themyscira. I've come to help you, Roger Oakley. No, you're a damn traitor. A liar. You serve humans, not metahumans. We are the future of Earth. We carry the power gene. But humans are allowed to debase us, humiliate us. Roger, you have to stop this. The path you're on leads only to death. I am no metahuman, Roger. I was made out of raw Earth by the gods, but I can cry and laugh and bleed. Even those who were born on other planets, like John Jones, are human in every way that matters. I am a metahuman. I am better, more pure than everyone else. Roger, if we can only talk. No talking. You're just trying to trick me. Diana deflects a terrific blast from the high-tech rifle with her bracelets. My wrist feels broken. That rifle must fire some kind of rocket shell. You, you stop that bullet. And I will keep deflecting them, Roger. I will not let you kill anyone. You can't stop me. Even if I die, the metahuman cause will gain strength from my blood. The only real strength comes from kindness and mercy. You know that, Roger. But metahumans are better, stronger, faster. We deserve nothing. I could break your spine over my knee, but would that make it right? No. At last, the spell is set. I feel the power cut through my veins like fire. Now loose the web of fear. My enemy will see about him whatever he fears most. The spell begins now. I don't know. I wanted to be special, to cleanse the world. Now I'm just tired. It is over, Roger. Put down the gun. Now do the guilty quake in fear. Now strike the wicked with terror. Just as the terrorist is about to lay down his arms and give up to Wonder Woman, he's caught in the white magician's spell. They're all over me! They're laughing at me! They're everywhere! Dirty! Everything's dirty! Gotta purge! The gunman begins firing wildly. No, no. This can't be happening. I failed my mother. Failed the gods. I am unworthy. Vile. Ignoble. A little girl almost falls from the rooftop. Diana is snapped out of her self-loathing by the imperiled girl. Diana manages to grab her, but she still can't fly. And both figures are tethered by the hang of one of Wonder Woman's boots off the ledge. The flying serpents are the crowning touch. Everyone fears them. And their bites will distract. They should finish the terrorist and bring him to his knees. We can rescue the hostages at leisure. On the rooftop above, barely clinging to life, Wonder Woman thinks, So weak. Those eel bats must have bitten me a thousand times. Can't let go. The child's mother had also been struggling with her own images of fear. Worms, snakes crawling all over her. But to save her daughter and the amazing Amazon, this mother overcomes those fears and helps drag Wonder Woman to safety. With the women back on the roof, they find the gunman's now dead. It must have happened when the fear first hit. He must have had so much more to be afraid of. With the survivors safely on the ground, Cassie Arnold interviews Wonder Woman, who explains that Mrs. Chomlimsky was the real hero. 
Cassie Arnold wondered if Wonder Woman was implying that the white magician spell wasn't necessary and then cuts off Wonder Woman to see what Asquith Randolph thinks about this accusation. I never argue with a lady. I wasn't insulting him. She never let me finish. I fear we are all mere clay to the media. Suppose you let me make it up to you over dinner. Hmm. Soon the white magician and the amazing Amazon are back at his mansion sitting at a long dining table to my newest guest and the heroine of the hour. I told you, I was not the one who... You were the one in the costume. You were the one expected to be heroic. Who appeared to be heroic. And appearances are everything. That's only... Oh, that scent. Barbecued pork ribs. A weakness of mine. I assume anyone as politically correct as yourself must disapprove. We hunted for our food on Themyscira, Doctor. Often I chased a wild boar only with a spear. Nothing tastes better than charred flesh. You've chewed off the bone of your own kill. How poetic. I prefer to have others do my killing for me. Princess, they're on your wrist. Is that a bruise? He had a way of asking, even a simple question, that put you on the defensive, as though he uncovered a hidden weakness. Yes, I turned one of the rifle bullets aside. It was very painful. Painful? I thought your bracelets were unbreakable. Or is that another myth? They are unbreakable, but the flesh underneath can still be injured. The trick is to see the pain as your friend. She teaches you and keeps you sharp. An interesting notion. I've noticed that only a natural leader welcomes discomfort as a growth experience. Have you considered that you are one of a small percentage of the Earth's populace with the gifts to be truly superior? After all, that is the old dream, superiority. Consider the altered strain. With a distance spell, I can show you their current demonstration before the Themyscian Embassy. They are protesting your murder of that fool on the rooftop. Does that worry you? They are fanatics, after all. Does it enrage you? No, they are deluded. Superiority is the old foolishness. Only weak, frightened people seek worth in their genes instead of their characters. Then does the fact that they get so much attention enrage you? I don't think about them at all. Well, I do. The Randolphs founded this country. Thomas Jefferson was a Randolph. And now these creatures with no breeding dare to posture as the leaders of the future. But no one takes their claims seriously. For the present. But we live in decadent times, princess. The mob rules. A TV-drugged electorate allows weaklings and demagogues to rule, while Visigoths pillage in the streets. There is a need for an avenging spirit to make things right. Revenge is a trap, doctor. You know that. But did he? His anger was real. That much he was sure of. But there was a theatrical edge to it, almost as if he wanted to share it. But why? Leaving the dining room, the pair began touring the house. This is a beautiful home, Dr. Randolph. Thank you. It's my only real pleasure these days. When it was built, there was pride in one's work and a sense of craftsmanship. I think you are too hard on modern life. I know many people who care about their work. Do they? The worst for them, then. As he spoke the bitter words, Asquith Randolph chuckled, even though he'd said nothing funny, and Diana found herself staring at the patterns the moonlight made on the wall. What's the point of caring, unless you live in grace and elegance, amid the ease and silence that only the finest souls can produce or appreciate? Not everyone can afford to. After all, weren't homes like this built by cheap immigrant labor or by slaves? What does it matter? The important thing is they were built. There have always been great men. Great families, who dared to dream greatly, who left a legacy and built civilization. But look at this library, assembled book by book since before colonial times. I doubt you'll see its like. 
Gaia, so many books. Not even the Boston Public Library has so many. Browse if you like. My tastes, you'll find, are eclectic and eccentric. Those books are in Greek, the classic Greek we spoke on Themyscira. These are the plays of Euripides, but these are all his plays, even ones lost when the Library of Alexandria burned. The white magician magically snatched the book from her hand. Yes, well, some things are difficult to understand, aren't they? Why had he done that? It was almost as though he was trying to provoke her. My apologies. That book was there by mistake. It's just too delicate to be touched, save by magic. I understand. I was just... Suppose I show you my greenhouse. I grow herbs there, both for my experiments and for the kitchen. A greenhouse, too? This house must be gigantic. The greenhouse is a separate wing, first built in the 1920s. We, the family, didn't want to be dependent on others for our vegetables. What a lovely smell. But don't you shade the windows at night? Not in this section. Some things grow best by moonlight. The pair reach the pool, where they find reporter Cassie Arnold swimming in her pink bikini. She'd let herself in with her whittle key, as she said. And then she approached to give her lover a great big kiss. At first, she is embarrassed. But then, she realized that in a sense, they are both showing off for her. Each in their own way, displaying their power and connections. And since it is a show, it would be impolite not to watch. Ask with Randolph decides to use his teleportation power to lead the ladies to their conversation. With the intent of meeting back with one woman in the study. Suddenly, Diana understood how Cassie Arnold had such excellent access within the city of Boston. Cassie found power the ultimate aphrodisiac, mocking Wonder Woman for finding justice to be a turn-on, and noting that she couldn't get past that old loser's smell if she'd happened to attract the attention of an honest, self-sacrificing man who protects the weak or whatever. Diana departs in disgust, and eventually finds her way to the White Magician on a terrace. Greetings, princess. The moon is bright tonight. Have you ever wondered what secrets it holds? I have something for you. An armlet with a black diamond centerpiece was produced. Oh no, I could not take anything so expensive. But I insist. Oh, it is so cold, but it is beautiful. It's a special gem. They say it gives one the ability to see the truth. The next time you go to visit your Amazon Isle, take me with you. I'd like to meet your mother. Meet Hippolyte? Yes, there are things of value I have to share with her. A week later, one woman flies over Paradise Island. But this is not the Themyscira that she remembers. After just one week with a white magician, Queen Apollo has sold out the island completely. Picking up English and a fuchsia business suit, plans are already in place for a Burger Queen to be built there, and various Amazons pretend incompetence to soothe the male egos of all the well-heeled dude bros who are now visiting the island. One of the men attempts to sexually assault an Amazon, who tearfully protests that she's not ready. Diana pulls the idiot off by the ponytail, but then his intended victim protests. Princess, please, he'll leave me. It was my fault. I shouldn't have teased him. What is the matter with all of you? Are you mad? Some of the girls are having hard time adapting to modern ways. We're lucky your friend offered to advise us. Hello, princess. Mother, you can't kiss his hand. A gesture of respect to the friend of the Amazons. Friend, what has he done? I've brought in development, hotels and casinos. This paradise island is a great draw. Lots of men will pay to be catered to by an island full of Amazons. Not to mention the film crews and ad campaigns that want sexy, muscular babes. I saw women in chains. Have you brought slavery here too? Slavery is such an ugly word. Those are discipline problems, being shipped off to friends of mine for retraining. Mother, wake up! Can't you see what he's doing? Why are you permitting this? I'm older than you, dear, and wiser, much older. You touched me with your jewel. 
Queen Hippolyta begins to age rapidly until she dies of mere skeleton. Mama, she's dead. I brought you here and you've corrupted and destroyed everything. I told you the jewel would bring out the truth. And the truth was she had lived too long. <laughs> you've turned the most loving culture on earth into a charnel house. Women are weaklings and always weep when men are forced to dominate them. You'll thank me. Men are fire. Fire hardens mud. Evil man. The white magician backhands the Amazon. Shut up. The pain, humiliation, and loss fused within her, becoming a rage that choked her and screamed in her ears. And Asquith Randolph was smiling. And even as she grabbed him and felt his flesh give beneath her fingers, some small corner of her mind was whispering, This is wrong. He wants this. The rage is a trap. And just as suddenly she was back at the mansion, under the moonlight, and something was feeding off her rage, increasing it, and it was as if every moment of anger in the universe was running through her in one vast current. Diana's eyes turned red, and part of her face was obscured by a cyan hue. The stars in her costume turned to crescent moons, and her dark hair began to levitate. Diana had been taken over by the malevolent influence of Eclipso, but she was also bound in an arcane spell, trapped by the white magician. Blackness bind ye, fear and anger chain ye. With fetters of pure fire. It was all an illusion, princess. Have you guessed that? Eclipso crouches on the moon's dark side like a great spider, sowing his black gems, hoping to possess those who are filled with anger. I knew if I could trick you into becoming possessed by him, then mystically bind you, I could use you like a battery, feeding my own fading powers, until I rule this mud ball like a god. The process should burn you to ash in about 48 hours. Have a good life. Asquith Randolph rejoined Cassie Arnold as they laughed about their plot having worked out. The white magician had secured one of Eclipso's black diamonds and turned it into the armlet that he gave Wonder Woman. The pair of them just had to make her angry enough to be turned by Eclipso, and then they could feed off of her, allowing the white magician to become a relevant power again and Cassie Arnold to be the woman at his side. However, they'd underestimated both Wonder Woman and Eclipso. The angry Amazon was soon free and destroying the mansion in a bid to kill the man that had turned her toward a place that Princess Diana would never forgive herself for. The white magician couldn't formulate any spells as the Amazon was hurling one thing after another at him. And at one point, he abandons Cassie Arnold to her probable doom. While the compromised reporter is choked by the lasso of truth for a short time, she's ultimately released largely unharmed. In fact, she's soon on the phone to her camera woman, waking her up at three in the morning so that they can get footage of this incident and blow up their careers. With the time bought by throwing Cassie to the wolf, the white magician was able to manifest a large, high-powered rifle. I'm here, princess. I conjured this rifle to hunt dinosaurs and metahumans and other things that won't stay dead. I once killed a Daxamite with it. Deflect this, princess. The bullets bounced off her chest harmlessly. You confuse me with the flesh I wear, magician. I am Eclipso. The white magician conjures a spell to blind Wonder Woman. Do you think a simple fog can stop me, magician? My sight is more dangerous than that. And with that, Wonder Woman held the black diamond to her eye and fired a blast of ebon energy. Eclipso is more powerful than the white magician had ever dreamed. He has no recourse but to run. But out on the lawn, he's caught by the Eclipse Wonder Woman, who plows through him and the greenhouse. Or so it appears. Believing her work done, the Eclipse Wonder Woman begins flying toward the moon, where her master keeps house. Asquith Randolph then rematerializes. I survived. I slipped out of phase with the universe. You don't seem surprised, Cassie. Dimensional travel is wretched. In the end, though, Cassie Arnold makes a note. You know she had me. She had me and she let me go. It's almost as if the real Diana is still in there, trying somehow to change that demon, make him less deadly. It's more than I would have done for her. Makes you think, you know. 
Shadows and Eclipses was released on August 11th, 1992, the same day as Wonder Woman number 67. Clearly, somebody wanted to firmly establish the White Magician early in the William Mester Loeb's run, so he was introduced for the first time in the previous issue of The Monthly, then reintroduced here without anyone ever acknowledging how Diana could meet and be egregiously rooked by Asquith Randolph twice in unrelated contemporaneous stories. My headcanon has decided that getting Eclipse caused Diana to have a case of short-term memory loss, allowing the White Magician to greet and mess Wonder Woman over again in the Noble Pirate's Ark. Plus, the latter story takes place over a span of several months within continuity, so the Eclipso event would have come and gone before Diana returned to Earth. By the way, in promotional materials for the Eclipso annual, Asquith Randolph's name was listed as Duncan, which doesn't sell his pomposity nearly as well, so I'm glad they changed it. As with most modern-era Wonder Woman villains, nobody but the person who created him ever bothered to use him. But I feel the White Magician is a much stronger and more vital villain than many of the other rogues created in the post-crisis stories. What makes him great is that he isn't yet another dark reflection of Wonder Woman. He isn't a Nazi. He's not borrowed or copied from another hero's rogues gallery. And he doesn't have ties to Greek mythology. It's almost as if for once a creator didn't Frankenstein together what they thought a Wonder Woman villain should be. And bothered to look to see what was actually missing in her foes to come up with an adversary that brought something new to the table. As for the annual itself, I feel it's important to note that Wonder Woman skipped two straight years of participation. DC's 1990 annuals lacked a theme and were few and far between. This would have landed toward the end of Perez's run, and to be honest, I found the two annuals produced under his watch pretty to look at, but rather boring to read. 1990 may have missed an opportunity to turn Diana over to a more daring interpreter for a change of pace. Maybe give Giffen and Demetrius a chance to explain Diana's JLI disappearances in a funny romp. Or perhaps having an all-woman creative team with talent like Sarah Byam, Linda Medley, or Colleen Duran. The absence of a 1991 annual was a much greater loss, though. Wonder Woman has only ever gotten a tiny fraction of the imaginary stories and Elseworlds afforded to Batman and Superman. Armageddon 2001 could have given George Perez the opportunity to give his run a proper, far-reaching conclusion. Like Peter Davis' last issue of Incredible Hulk, where he summarized all the stories he would have told if Marvel hadn't kept screwing with him until he quit the book. Alternately, and perhaps ideally, it would have given the chance for some new blood to offer a daring vision of the Amazon princess in a safe, no-consequences forum. However, this was not to be, and we're probably lucky to have an Eclipso annual. I personally feel that it was one of the best outings of the event, thanks to its focus on establishing the White Magician and its slow burn toward Diana being eclipsed. It rightfully takes a lot to turn Wonder Woman, and along the journey we're allowed to see a truly feminist horror story that gives a valuable social context to ask with Randolph's villainy. He's a compliment to Dr. Psycho's pure, unbridled misogyny. A classical mid-century egotist with casual sexism, just a garnish on his scumbag sandwich. He's supposedly attractive, affluent, and refined, but he bristles at the slightest resistance to his will and worldview. He's a contrast to Diana through his callous entitlement, materialism, and narcissism. Ultimately, the story is a character piece, revealing through conversation the great divide between Diana, the reporter Cassie Arnold, and her meal ticket. It's also a bit of a hammer horror film with its sexed-up neo-Victorian setting. Initial penciler John Dennis only has a handful of credits and his work does lack polish and consistency, but it's much better than a lot of artists at the time with mood, architecture, and perspective. I like the Larry Stroman-esque flourishes he brought to some panels, and feel it's too bad we didn't get to see how he would have developed over time. Inker Andy Parks makes everything look of a piece without overriding the style of the artist on the second half of the book. That would be a young David Johnson, 
not yet the Reverend Devil Pig, but with the panache that recalls the Gaijin Studios house style. Once Diana's eclipsed, all the stars on her outfit become crescent moons and her hair floats like Elsa Lancaster. It's more than a bit cheeky, but Johnson sells it. That's important because once Diana turns, the script loses its central thread in favor of a lengthy rampage that accomplishes nothing. That was actually the major failing of the Eclipso annuals. All setup was done in the first Darkness Within special, so the follow-up annuals had no beginning of their own. Writers either assumed that readers had seen the special and left out potentially essential information for the uninitiated, or regurgitated the same core facts that followers of the overarching story were likely sick of hearing about. The basic plot of familiar heroic characters being turned to the dark side and menacing people was repeated over a dozen times. And then there couldn't be any resolution since all those Eclipsos had to make their way toward the Darkness Within special number two. So no beginning or endings, which isn't very conductive to manufacturing horror, the singular genre all these annuals were forced into. Again, by virtue of working as well as it does, one of proves an event highlight. The effective cover by future superstar Joe Quesada, inked by the legendary Kevin Nolan, didn't hurt either. Too bad the sales didn't seem to indicate Diana getting a Bloodlines annual in 1993. I'd have loved to have seen what sort of new blood turned up in that. Possibly for the best, though, since Bloodlines had the exact same flavor and pitfalls as The Darkness Within, but with even more plot complications and tied to a far worse eponymous miniseries. She doesn't look so hot. I'll get her to the Watchtower. You handle the lunatic. Getting back to the darkness within, Diana had a brief layover in Adventures of Superman Annual Number 4 by Robert Lauren Fleming and Bob McLeod. In the story In Blackest Night, we saw Earth's surviving heroes banded together to free the Man of Steel from Eclipso's influence. Wonder Woman wasn't so lucky, joining the other compromised heroes in a trip to Eclipso's Palace in the Moon. This was the penultimate chapter before Eclipso The Darkness Within Number 2, released on August 25th, 1992. Brilliant Men by Keith Giffen, Robert Lauren Fleming, and Bart Sears, as well as a squad of finishers, sees Diana drawn into a bunch of flashy group shots before her flesh was oozed into a giant mass of Eclipso. Recalling Brian Yuzna's Society, oddly not the first time I've referenced that cold favorite on a podcast, Superman and a squad of Dr. Bruce Gordon's solar-empowered scientists, which also included the MIA Blue Beetle, used their pseudo-proton packs to liberate Wonder Woman by letting the sun shine in. The Eclipso meat castle of molestation grabbed Diana again, prompting her to scream, Don't touch me! It was ultimately up to a bunch of light-based heroes to fully save the day for everyone. And thus ended the crossover. So, how are you? Fine, I guess. But everything's still a blur. Just take it easy for a while. And don't make any sudden moves. What? Uh, nothing. Wonder Woman and Eclipso had one other major encounter, and it was actually Eclipso's most high-profile adaptation into outside media. It was on the animated television show Justice League, which ran on the Cartoon Network. The episode was Eclipse, the two-parter that initially aired on November 8th, 2003. They were the 39th and 40th episodes aired, but apparently the 41st and 42nd actually produced. The Justice League cartoon always, in the early seasons, had two-part episodes, running roughly an hour total. The episode Eclipse was written by Joseph Kerr and directed by Dan Reba. It starts with an American special ops team finding a giant purple jewel in a cave in an unnamed country. The group is attacked by an old man named Mofir, wielding a sword trying to defend this giant black diamond. Mofir defeats most of the soldiers but is knocked out by the butt of one of their rifles. One of the soldiers picks up the black diamond and becomes eclipsed. 
And one of the ways that the show informs you of this is that each person who gets Eclipse begins humming an eerie tune. As the episode progresses, the Justice League are hounded by glorious Gordon Godfrey, who in the cartoon is one of those hypercritical talking heads on the television that find fault in just about anything. And so a lot of the show is about the Flash getting the Justice League in hotter and hotter water by playing into glorious Godfrey's accusations instead of successfully refuting them. Meanwhile, the Eclipso gym keeps making its way up the military command, trying to get to nukes or some other device that would be able to create an extinction-level event. Also, over the course of the story, Wonder Woman herself becomes comes eclipsed. Mofir continues to track down the gym and tries to kill Wonder Woman. He's put in an insane asylum, but as Wonder Woman begins to act more and more strangely, the Flash goes back to Mofir to ask him basically what was going on. Mofir finally explains the radically altered history of Eclipso within the context of the animated universe. Long ago, before writing, before cities, man's future uncertain, for he was at war with Ophidians. Ophidi what? Snakes who walk like men. Moon worshippers. After years of struggle, man was winning. Most of Ophidians dead. Wiped out. The surviving Ophidians used sorcery to commit mass suicide and impregnated a giant gem with their essences in hopes of one day taking their vengeance on mankind by destroying their once shared world. Here was born Black Diamond, heart of darkness. Any who touch Dark Heart are possessed by vengeful spirits. Their only goal, destroy humanity. Since that time, Mofir's people guard Dark Heart. Mofir is latest to guard Diamond, but evil ones escape. Not Mofir's fault. But why attack the princess? Mofir tracked evil to her, tried to drive out dark ones. But Ringman stopped Mofir before he can finish job. Let's say I believe you. How do we stop it, or them? Two ways. Pure light from Mofir's gem drives spirits back into heart of darkness. Great. What's the second way? Separate host head from body. Bummer. The Flash shrieks to confront Wonder Woman with the help of the Justice League, but unfortunately the Black Diamond has already made its way through several members of the League, most specifically John Jones, and Eclipso has managed to smuggle a device that could blot out the entire sun aboard the uh, Justice League's satellite headquarters. An attempt is made to destroy the Black Diamond, which only fractures it, sending shards into the skins of a variety of Justice League members possessing all of them, who then turn on the Flash. The Flash is finally able to free his friends of Eclipso's influence through exposure to sunlight, and then joins Green Lantern in retrieving the device that had been sent into the sun to prevent global extinction. Also, Mofir becomes a pitch man for an anti-flatulence drug since the Flash didn't want that particular gig. It was a running theme that Flash kept selling himself and, by extension, selling out the Justice League, fueling Gory Scott-Free's attacks of their credibility. Aside from the severe liberties taken with the Eclipso character, which to some degree is understandable, uh, you probably wouldn't want to 
to get into the biblical ramifications of the revised Eclipso that came out of the darkness within. You could have gone back to the old Bruce Gordon version. Mophir goes from a dark-skinned islander who's portrayed as something of a witch doctor and typically portrayed as an adversary to a light-skinned defender. So the racial politics and that decision are pretty squicky. Also, it's worth noting that Mophir was voiced by Tracy Walter, who is probably best known as playing Bob the Goon in the first Batman movie. I personally enjoyed the episode, but it was hard to turn off my mind given that I'm a bit of an Eclipso fan. It bugs me a lot that they felt the need to change the character so radically for the cartoon and it didn't exactly ignite an Eclipso renaissance since this is still the only major media adaptation of the character outside of like video games. So these dead snake guys are inside Diana and they want to destroy the world. This is a grave development. I'm glad you believe me. I know this Mofir guy sounds loony. Diana has been acting strangely since her recovery. We should keep an eye on her. Diana Prince is the new Wonder Woman, received social media love from the 108th Sage, Akshay Tady, Alex, Dr. Ange, Between the Pages, Blue Girl, Bob Curer, Brody's Kitchen, Buddy Wuddy, Coffee and Comics, Columbus Comics Corner, Comic Book Vault, Comics in the Golden Age, Comic Reflections, DCU Movie Page, Dr. G, the Man of Nerdology, Ed Moore, any comics fan in Marvel Bronze Age, Inigo Montoya, Freeney Salona, Glenn Hunutu Hill, Gord Tolton, Grant Richter Writes, Hondo, I'm the Gun, Jeffrey Brown, John Stinson Fernand, Joseph Crawford, Just Sigma Guy, Justice First Dawn, Keith G. Baker, King Size Comics Giant Size Fun Podcast, Nana at Mariana Orthodo, Mario Luther Lang, Mark Danvers, Matches Baloney, Min, Nethead, Paul Hicks, Punch Like a Girl Podcast, Rad Adventures Podcast, The Relatively Geeky Podcast Network, Resurrections and Adam Warlock and Thanos Podcast, Rob at Speculum Fight, Ryan Daly, Sean Phillips, Silver and Gold Podcast, Siskoid, Slangwood Resists, Stephanie Young, Tom Jinsby, Tony Acero, Trekker Talk, Warlord Worlds, Wonder Woman Warrior for Peace Podcast, and Xenozoic Xenophiles. The Trekker Talk Podcast noted it's Wonder Woman Day. Celebrate with the excellent Diana Prince Wonder Woman Podcast with Diablo Frank. Grant Richter noted, Diana's story from Justice Always Breaks My Heart. Not Guanaman wrote, Some excellent Wonder Woman-based insight and ranting here from the ever-eloquent and righteous Diablo Frank. I'm the Gun wrote, Just chock full of excellent points, though not a hard sell for justice, kingdom come. Treasury Comics wrote, While I disagree with a lot of Frank's views on the Deanie Ross books, he brings up some good points here regarding how they handle Wonder Woman. Rob at Speculum Fight writes, Sweet, nice to have some Wonder Woman podcasts to keep me busy until tonight, being the night that the Wonder Woman movie came out. Speaking of which, Ryan Daly wrote that he was looking forward to your review of Wonder Woman. I wasn't, as I uh, did that review with my buddies Illegal Machine and Mr. Fix-It, which I considered putting on this podcast stream but ended up dumping into a DC special, in part because of all the cursing. I don't think any of us came out of that looking good. I think we were basically the worst examples of ourselves. And uh, ultimately, I didn't actually give a review. It was mostly just me screaming at the guys about why their opinions were wrong. My hope and expectation is that when the movie comes out on uh, Blu-ray, I'll pick that up early, dive into all the special features, and then give a nice in-depth dissection of the film. Plus, I'm still waiting to see that third viewing. So, However, that podcast did go over well with the 108th Sage. And since there's no telling when we'll do another DC special podcast, and uh, a lot of the content is more relevant to this show than that one anyway, I figured I'd share Sage's comments here. Hi, this is the 108th Sage of the Mary Marvel Marching Society and other sundry Twitter interactions. Writing you an email because, A, I just heard you give it at the end of the ironically iconic Wonder Woman episode of Diana Prince the New Wonder Woman. And B, none of my usual reasons for not writing into a podcast I love applied at the moment. So I've been a fan of Fire and Water since the summer of 2014. 
and thus was well aware of your proclivity for commenting, and even heard you on an episode or two. So when I heard you were starting your own network, I was of course interested, especially since I was a Marvel kid, and only came to DC and college through Vertigo. And then I met your co-hosts and was instantly enamored. Y'all have quite the familiar chemistry of obviously long-term friends who know each other and their buttons enough to know when and how to push them, to great comedic effect. I've also enjoyed your solo work, both the Idolhead of Diabolu and Diana Prince, the new Wonder Woman. The Martian Manhunter has been one of my favorite DC characters since I was really exposed to him in comics, in the pages of JLI, about the time I was really delving into DC's superhero fare for the first time. And Wonder Woman is, of course, an icon, in no way ironically, in my humble opinion. Speaking of which, I really appreciate your voice on the Wonder Woman film review, attempting to get across to them the importance and emotional weight of this film for pretty much all feminine-identified people of basically any stripe. I'm not sure they ever actually got it, but I'm sure the majority of cishet dudes listening will get at least some of it, which is all we can really hope. I myself identify as a genderqueer trans woman who has loved superheroes as long as I can remember, but hasn't ever seen a superheroine film worthy of being liked, let alone loved. So I guess it's not surprising I was willing to give this film such a pass on some of the weaker aspects of it. And Mac is right, in his own way, that this film doesn't actually deserve all the hype and praise it is getting, purely on its own merits, taken by itself. But since we are not living in an ideal universe where it would merely be a pretty good superhero flick and not a groundbreaking phenom of cinematic achievement purely based on social and historical context it does need to be acknowledged that like it or not this film is amazing anywho i've gone on long enough so i'll let you go and in closing you can read this in whatever fragmentary or non-existent way across any applicable podcast or whatever and also i hope this missive finds you well sign the 108th and I thank you for your comments, both in your comment and uh, in listening to the first episode of the uh, newish podcast, Lasso of Truth. It was heartening for me as a straight white middle-aged dude to find that a lot of the stuff that I've been ranting about and defending in my social justice warrior way, backed up by the opinions of female skewing peoples. Sometimes dudes like me get up on our high horse and we're not actually helping anybody. We're not actually getting across any opinions with merit. We're just saying what we think people want to hear or championing our skewed perception of a cause and doing it incorrectly. I do oftentimes wonder that I'm fighting the wrong battles or fighting them in a way that does more harm than good. But I try to listen to the perspectives of people that come from a different place than myself and my friends. And I do it with the best of intentions. And it makes me feel good to know that I'm not screwing up or at least when I screw up, I do it in such a way that I'm not making the people that I'm trying to champion angry at me or hurt by me. I'm really, really glad to see how successful the one-on-one movie has been and hope that it will be a guidepost toward making more movies from more varied perspectives, serving a greater number of audiences than Marvel's nasty tendency to have nothing but white dudes named Chris as their superheroes. Uh, I also agree that Wonder Woman, you know, it's not a perfect movie. Uh, You can't put it up on too high of a pedestal. But at the same time, we don't need people going after that movie. Maybe in a few years, maybe after some great sequels, maybe after a greater number of superhero movies featuring people that aren't white dudes, we can go back and be more critical of Wonder Woman. But the fact is, right now, she stands alone. We need to support the movie. We need to support the creators behind the movie. We need to highlight all the great things that it did right. I don't see that it's productive to try to underline things that it perhaps did wrong, depending on what perspective you're coming at it from. Because, again, as with any movie, what this person thinks was incorrect is the thing that makes this person the most giggly about the film. 
But what I will definitely push back against is anybody that says that it isn't a good movie, that it isn't an entertaining movie, that it isn't a movie that really appeases audiences, sins about having had a good time. And and the thing is, though, is, again, mentioning the Lasso of Truth podcast, if you listen to their show, they were very negative about the movie as well. Uh, and I do think they had very valid criticisms. I don't agree with a lot of them. Uh, I bristled at a lot of them, in fact. But I also recognize those opinions are coming from a place that we don't get to hear nearly often enough, especially in the little small pool of superhero comics. And I do think that there are criticisms offered there that will make later movies better. So I urge everybody to go out and listen to that show. And I hope that I'll continue to do some kind of good on this show in my bumbling, heteronormative way. Wonder Woman is the copyright of DC Comics Entertainment. This is a non-profit fan-produced podcast. No infringement of any copyrights are intended. And where copyrighted material appears, it is believed protected under fair use. If you enjoy the show, please feel free to leave a comment on the Diana Prince is the new Wonder Woman blog, the Rolled Spine podcast blog. Write to me at emailofdiabolu at yahoo.com featuring two underscores. Or just hit me up on Twitter at commanderblanks or at Rolled Spine. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful week. If you enjoyed the background music played on this episode, please consider respecting the artists and legally downloading the following songs. Total Eclipse of the Heart by Bonnie Tyler, Ribbon of Darkness by Marty Robbins, and Diamond Girl by Sills and Croft. And always remember... Swing the lasso!